Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Dealmakers podcast series. I'm Yaron Werber, Biotechnology Analyst at Cowan. I'm super excited to be joined by Dr. Sophie Kornowski and Doug Giordano in this episode called Look Externally, Not Internally for Innovation. We're gonna be discussing the importance of sourcing innovations and drugs externally, doing win-win collaborations, not being afraid to do M&A and taking on risks when doing deals. Dr. Sophie Kornowski joined Gurnet Point Capital from Roche, where she was Executive Vice President, Global Head of Partnering. In this role, Sophie developed and maintained over 200 external partnerships and completed over 550 deals per year. Sophie was a member of Roche Extended Global Executive Committee and a member of the boards of Shugai. Previously, she was General Manager of Roche France and spent 11 years at Merck. Doug Giordano is Managing Director at Perceptive Advisors, Prior to joining Perceptive, Doug was Senior Vice President, Pfizer Worldwide Business Development Group. In that capacity, he deployed over $125 billion in capital, leading Pfizer's evaluation, negotiation, and execution of all strategic deals, including the IPO and split-off of Zoetis, carve-out of Cerevel, Springworks, and Allergene, and the spin-off and merger of Viatris. Doug previously held position of increasing responsibility at Pfizer's U.S. Pharmaceutical Group in finance, manufacturing, and commercial strategy. Uh, Sophie and Doug, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, always great to see you. Really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're happy to be here. So, Sophie, maybe I'll, I'll start with you. I have to start by asking the obvious question, and, and Doug, to you as well. You're both very successful at your roles at Roche and Pfizer. What was the secret sauce? What, what made you successful? Yeah, so uh, thank you for the question, Yaron. Uh, maybe, you know, a lot of things uh, have to go right for uh, for success in partnering. I would say the first thing was uh, a great team uh, with experts in various disease areas. Uh, so they we would really go deep into the science, into the business, and not keep it at the generality level, which is really um, not the way to do deals. So I would say that's the first one. And the second one is, I think, a mindset in Roche that I, I, I learned there and I kept of building friendship with future partners. And I think being with Doug today is an example because Doug and I, we did a lot of things together. And I remember one day where after, I don't know, nine months of working on a deal, Doug, I call you to tell you it's dead. And you were the most elegant and friendly person I can think of. And, you know, we kept a relationship going and it existed before, it existed after. And I think that's essential. Uh, partnering, is this is in the name. And I do think it's a recipe for success because uh, you build trust and um, positive relationships that go beyond the deals. Uh, and people want to work with you again and again. And that has been uh, just a wonderful journey for me. Yeah, I well, thank you, Sophie. I think yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think in our industry in general, you have to be uh, the eternal optimist, don't you? I mean, there's there's so many ups and downs that we'll see, whether it's, you know, as we pursue something uh, in the discovery lab or as we pursue something clinically and as we pursue something from a business development perspective. So you can't get too high when things go well. 
and you get can't get too low when things aren't going quite as well. You have to kind of believe in your strategy, believe in your mission, believe that what you're doing is important to patients, important to stakeholders, important to your company, and then really look to to uh, to focus and drive. I think you know for me, I I, uh, I tried to instill within Pfizer a kind of a spirit of collaboration, creativity, and responsiveness, which I thought as a potential partner was going to be critical to the companies that we were going to be interacting with, to the professionals, to the clinicians that we were interacting with. So it's probably true in business as well as in your personal life. If you can collaborate with people, if you can think creatively, and if you're responsive, right, you're going to build trust to, to Sophie's point, And that trust, you know, becomes the foundation of being able to, to accomplish things. So you kind of take that creativity, collaboration, responsiveness, you wrap around uh, honesty and integrity, and then you put some hard work and focus. And, and I think you can accomplish a lot. So I, I really lo love that answer. It's about relationships, being optimistic, collaborative, creative, uh, responsive, and, and obviously trustworthy. When, when you think about some of the biggest challenges to incorporating external transaction when you're developing a pipeline and you're both coming from big companies, innovative, with long-standing legacies that have their own internal pipelines as well. How do you foster the external view versus the internal drive to the non-invented here syndrome? And how do you combat that? Maybe Sophie, let's start with you, especially coming from Roche. You have to uh, partner internally as much as you partner externally. You are not going to be successful in bringing something new to the R&D folks or to the business folks if you don't fully understand what they're doing internally, what are they focused on, what is a budget situation, and what keeps them up at night. Uh, you're actually going to be a disruptor that's going to be very unpleasantly perceived. So once you understand they're looking for something and they understand that you're going to bring something that they're going to fully own, you have to also team up with them on how they make room for that project or product. In Roche, it's quite simple. There is no money uh, available. If you bring in something, you have to stop something. So clearly, if you're not on their side, nothing is going to happen. So that uh, very close relationship in such a way that when deal comes uh, or decisions are to be made, uh, the partnering faults are embedded with the R&D or the commercial guys. You wouldn't be able to say who works where. I think that's a recipe for success. Not every company works like this. Some companies do deals that are more disruptive internally. Um, I would say, you know, the way we did it at Roche was, uh, was that way. And that is absolutely essential to be able to, uh, to work that way. I also want to add, there is a dark side to deals, which is, most of what you sign and, and invest in will fail. That's that's R&D. So it's better to not get into uh, deal anxiety and, you know, drink your own Kool-Aid. So staying really uh, very objective and, and listening carefully to the warning signs is also uh, something that people will uh, build respect uh, on you if, if they see you do that. Mm. So that's extremely important. Yeah. That's a great point. I'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Doug, what's your view? Yeah, no, as, as usual, I, I, I agree with, with Sophie on, on uh, what it takes. I mean, it, really trying to create any type of adversarial relationship between the business development team and, and the scientific team or the commercial team 
is not a recipe for success. It, it needs to basically been, be framed within the context of the strategy of the company, the, the strategy of the, the chief scientific officer, the, the strategy of, of the commercial team that's pursuing something. You need to understand those strategies. You need to, in the same way that I talk about creativity, collaboration, and responsiveness to external partners internally, you need to be collaborative with that internal partner. You need to understand their business. You need to help to create the, the opportunity to ideate and, and move forward on their strategy and then respond, respond to what their budget needs might be, respond to where some of the issues might be on the science, understand the diligence and really frame things in the, in the context of what the business is trying to do. If you're actually trying to do things orthogonally, it could, could meet with a lot of resistance. And to Sophie's point, many things are going to fail, right? So you wanna be in this together and you wanna make sure that it's not about getting the deal done, right? It's about actually taking what that collaboration with that partnership, what that deal provides and actually bringing it to patients, right? And, and making a business decision that's going to be constructive mm. to patients, constructive to the business. So when you get a deal done, it's the beginning not the end, right? I always say that, you know, this the big run up to the deal, that's the end of the beginning. And now the real hard work starts, which is yeah. continuing to develop the product, commercializing the product, getting the reimbursements, getting the awareness of patients, obviously. And those are the things where together we need to be in the right place to start the relationship and then follow through. Yeah. You know, one of the elements that I think is not as clear or visible to the outside world is how are deals actually getting done? Um, in the beginning of the year or on a two-year basis, is there sort of a detailed landscape mapping that's done between strategy, BD, R&D, clinical finance, and, and go get them. Here's the world. Here's what we want. Go get them. You know, time is, is, is ticking. Or are they done based on relationships? Or are they opportunistic based on ideas from a senior leader at the company or based on a, uh, you know, a bank calling you because there's a process, maybe Doug, let's start with you. Yeah, well, you know, I'm an engineer by training. So I think of things even from the perspective of like a linear programming equation, when, when I think about deals and I think about strategies, there's multiple variables that you're trying to, to control for and you're trying to optimize around value, right? Around bringing in science and bringing in technology that's going to move the strategy. So it starts with, you know, what are your financial goals? What are your strategic goals? And then what are the different variables that, that are part of, you know, this, this process? So certainly you need to have a strategic framework to, to evaluate which areas of science you want to pursue, uh, which areas of the business that you're, you're really looking to, uh, to, to try to advantage through your deal doing. Opportunism probably is not a good strategy for, for doing good deals. I think what you wanna make sure is, okay, where are the areas that, that, that you believe you have a differentiated ability to, to understand and conduct good science? Where are the areas that you feel you have a portfolio that's already very robust and probably well-budgeted? Where are the areas where you feel like there are some opportunities to, to trade up and improve? Where are those areas where you have that expertise? And really then trying to balance, okay, we know we have certain budget and PL constraints. We know we have certain ambitions in terms of growth, in terms of value creation. How do we bring all that together and allocate scarce resources, both resources including money, but also resources including the time of scientists, the time of the commercial team, 
the field force uh, uh, potential, right? So the, the, the bandwidth that a field force might have if you're looking to do a commercial deal and really take that all into consideration and see, you know, how, how you're going to prioritize. And certain companies, you know, look at these things differently within Pfizer, where I came from. We, we'd like to, to be, you know, very specific about the therapeutic areas that we were looking for, about what would constitute good science breakthrough, first in class, best in class, how that might therefore differentiate from a, a patient perspective and ultimately allow you to be reimbursed and, and be successful in the marketplace. So all those things have to come into play. So it can't be, gee, we got a call from banker XYZ. This seems like it might be good. We've always wanted to be in that space. Maybe we should take a shot. I mean, that, that is truly a, a recipe for failure. Instead, you want to lean in, right? You want to create those relationships. I used to say to my team, I want to make sure that, that we're in the best position, you know, if, if something is going to happen to either make it happen or to be able to respond when it does happen because we've built relationships, we've built an expertise and we're then able to, to really seize the moment. Mm, great. There's a lot there. Sophie, your, your, your thoughts. Yeah. So I think, uh, I mean, Doc touched upon a, a lot of things uh, which make a lot of sense. I agree. Uh, maybe I'll cover the opportunistic things the banker calls. I mean, most of the time, if the banker calls, uh, it's probably not for you. It's very different in investor world, uh, Doug. I think you, you see it as well. It's a whole different <laughs> story now. Uh, yes, yeah. So, yes, there, yeah. <laughs> so there is a strategic plan. Uh, it's not a small thing to get a strategic plan out of your R&D folks or your commercial people. So we should not, I mean, it sounds on the paper great. Uh, wow, to get there um, is, is extremely challenging. So I think in Roche, when I was there, and it, it may very well have evolved, there was a balance between you get a strategic plan on what you be, the areas of interest that are the most uh, attractive to the, to the folks internally. But you also have a pushback and the partnering team should be also driving, uh, you know, a new way of looking at things. This happened in rare disease. This happened in gene therapy, actually, um, where, you know, partnering push forward on, look, you know, there are areas where we should be looking. And even if we don't think it's there, if it's not there today, it's there tomorrow. It's complementary to what we have. So a healthy dialogue but, uh, with internally so that we dent a bit the way they look at the strategy. And then uh, after that, budget is complicated because you, you're going to have to stop projects. And if you knew you should, if you knew you're going to stop them, you should probably stop them now. But nobody ever want to say they have a project that should be stopped. So there has to be a, a bit of flexibility and, uh, and fluidity into that uh, partnering uh, roadmap. And then have people be out there and, as I said, teaming up with uh, with internal folks to meet interesting companies and develop the scientific knowledge. The big danger of our big companies is that at the end, they don't progress into their understanding of science. They are worried to take risks. And partnering can prove this, but in a balanced way, right? Because when things fail, it never feels any good to with anybody. So be proactive, have a strategic mapping, have very competent scientists internally, complementing with the internal scientists from R&D, and remain opportunistic, not through banker calls. Uh, I mean, banker calls, yes, why not? But mostly uh, biotech meetings, uh, 
just, you know, making that effort to meet this extra biotech because something may come out of it. So I think that's um, that's the way I, I look at it. Yeah, that's the one thing I just want to add, because, you know, what I, I always used to say, I like to say that, uh, you know, luck is when your opportunity meets the preparation. So you want to be prepared to make your own luck. And, and I think to do good deals and to be in a position to, to, to close those deals, you want to, quote unquote, get lucky, right? You want to be prepared. And so when I talk about putting together that, that linear program, putting together that plan, the one thing you know is you're not going to actually execute on this plan. You're not going to say, look, these are the three companies this year we're going to buy and you know, here, and everything's going to go the way you want it to go. Right. You want to really just be in a position where this is the science that we really like. These are the companies that are in that area. These are the, 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 the key catalysts that, that, that may trigger you know, us being even more interested. You, know, you, you look at the value, you look at the science, you look at where it's going, you think about your, your own budget and, and, and the, the, you know, the inflows and the outflows. And you kind of put yourself in this position where okay, I like this, this science, I like this company, there's some things that are gonna happen. Bang, something happened. Now, now, you know, now maybe it's time to take that conversation we've been having to Sophie's point, because we've been developing a relationship with this company to another level. Because mm -hmm. now, now they're mature, we're mature, we have the budgeting, we have this, boom, let's try to, let's try to make this a little bit more mature. And you know, an example of that, like in, in, in the Pfizer history might be, the deal that we did with Array it was a large, you know, acquisition. But you know, we had been working and in, in, in communication with Ron and that team for for a long time. We understood, you know, where they were. We understood their science. We understood, you know, when the data that we were interested in was going to be reading out. And so, it wasn't like, gee, that study read out that looks interesting. Somebody mm -hmm. called us and said, you know, do you want to do you want to you know talk to them? No, you know, we're we're leaning in, right? We're we're trying to make put ourselves in that position that when that opportunity it presents itself we've already been prepared mm. and sometimes you know sometimes companies aren't ready to have that conversation and so they even though we have a good relationship with these companies they're, they're not ready for for some type of change of control or some type of large partnership that board isn't ready they want to see the iu season more but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be having these interactions we shouldn't be in a situation where we're prepared we understand the science and then take advantage of, of those opportunities when they present themselves or, you know, try to create those opportunities by, by, by using the relationships that you've already developed to say, hey, maybe now it's time. What do you guys think? Mm. And, and maybe Sophie, if you were to go back and do your old role again, what, what would you change? What would you do different? And then same question to Doug. Well, I'm glad you're asking her first. <laughs> I would, I mean, uh, I would try to be smarter. I would try to uh, probably uh, dive into uh, projects more deeply, even if I was not needed. There is a one thing when you head uh, partnering is that uh, basically you're called in for the big deals or for the problems. And, uh, and I really like to learn about the project and the science and the commercial models. So um, I, I was very respectful of the teams and I didn't want to hinder anybody's work. Um, I think I could have uh, been a little bit more pushy to be uh, you know, looking at things uh, inside. Uh, I have to say that's what I really enjoy today because I own the deals I do and I am the chair of the companies and I'm the investor and now I know every single little detail. So I think I would have enjoyed my role a little bit more if I had been uh, deeper into more projects. I did this in, uh, you know, I was seven years in my role, so it's a long time. 
and I started digging at the beginning because I had to learn. And then towards the, you know, the last few years, I could dig more. But in the middle, I was very much into processes and teams. And I think if I had been more in deal, I would have more enjoyed it. Would we have done better? I, I don't know. I think uh, a lot has, I should be really humble about the performance. It was, I had the great team reporting into me and I had wonderful stakeholder. And I think that that made the, the results of the of, of partnering. So I don't know if it's about performance. It's more about enjoying the ride. I am someone who doesn't enjoy rides as much as I could. Doug, what about you? What would you do differently? He would yeah. do it, more deals with me. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think the the challenge for for folks that have the roles that that Sophie and I have had is this balance between the internal and the external, right? So the stakeholders that you have to to interact with, you know, internally, it can be complicated. And, you know, there's there's multiple stakeholders and, and, and there's different perspectives on, on different things. You, you know, you've got your CFO and, and the balance sheet that you have to, to, to balance against uh, the commercial team, against, uh, you know, the scientific team. And so that tends to, 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 to use a lot of energy, uh, you know, for, especially when you're leading a group and you're, you're trying to help, you know, move, move the business. And, you know, sometimes that's at the expense of being out, outward facing enough. And you know, I feel like I tried to 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 to, to face out and, and interact as much as I could with biotech CEOs and, and and with others, but I feel like I probably could have done more. And, uh, and and certainly, if I were to do it again, I might change that balance. But I think you know, as you as you come up through a company, uh, you and especially as a company is going through changes, you you end up spending a lot a lot of time uh, managing kind of internal and and since. The business development function can be a great source of, of competitive intelligence and, and competitive strategies. It's 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 important to, to not neglect uh, facing outside. So I, I think you know I tried to do the best I could in terms of that balance. I think as I was you know more longer in my role, I I, I tended to have the ability to face out more. I, I would have if I were to go back and do it again, I'd probably try to even emphasize more the outward facing component and, and really trying to tell the Pfizer partnering story in, in, in a way that uh, would, uh, would really reflect what I think is a great company that works uh, exquisitely well with, with partners, both from a scientific perspective as well as from a commercial perspective. And I think that's manifested itself in, in, in many successes, including the, the vaccine success with, uh, with BioNTech most recently. But, but telling that story, I think it was a good story to tell. I would have liked to have done, spent a little bit more time doing that. What about, let me ask you, there's, investors are going to be listening to this podcast as well. And, and one of the things they're always trying to wonder are what are some of the telltale signs ahead of time that a collaboration is particularly going well or really going off the wrong direction, going off the skids? Because you're not exactly invited at that point to see what's going on inside. So what are some of the signs? Well, I mean, again, it's going to depend in, in many ways on, on what type of collaboration, because, you know, I, I, if you think about the whole spectrum of things that, that a company like Roche or a company like Pfizer will do, it goes from preclinical partnership platform up, uh, diff, uh, partnerships all the way through to late stage commercial and commercial stage partnership. And I think the metrics on each of those are going to be different. 
right? So if you're if it's a commercial partnership or a near commercial partnership, uh, it's pretty clear you know, whether or not uh, the the uh, the companies are working well together and performing based on the the diffusion of the product out into the marketplace and and and, and how well it's doing. I think it's a little harder and it's probably a, a bit more opaque to, to, to look inside an early platform collaboration and truly understand. Uh, certainly, it's going to be milestone driven and trying to understand are the companies you know, hitting their milestones? Are they, are they laying out a plan? Is the appropriate uh, uh, spending and progress happening? And you can probably see that through the, through the companies that you're investing in, in terms of how they're reporting on their catalysts. But, but that's gonna be, right? The proof's always gonna be in the pudding. In, in if the collaboration was around XYZ technology and to get it into the clinic or to get it through the clinic to the patient, you know, how well is it tracking? And, and what is the, the, the justification or the rationale behind the slippage? It's so, always about uh, delivering on the milestones. Uh, and it's not a small thing to actually get those milestones right when you do an agreement. Um, thinking through about the scenarios and making sure the agreement you have is going to foster collaboration and results is essential. And it's incredibly hard to do because in the middle of the deal, I mean, you really want the deal to happen in a, in a smooth and positive way and you can't pull out every five minutes yet another roadblock. Uh, so you probably have to pull out the, all the roadblocks at the beginning, but no one works organized enough uh, to get this uh, this done well. So think thinking through ahead of time and getting everything in the agreement, and then you know if the collaboration is going well, if this agreement stays in the drawer. Uh, if you have to pull out the agreement every five minutes and start arguing, or, or what is the product profile? Is it really this, or is it really that? Or did we reach the milestone? Yes, no. I mean, that is just a recipe for uh, a lot of anxiety, which will go against uh, productive uh, collaboration. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. It's and totally true. Monitor, you know, and and oftentimes you have to reset if things are going off rail. Uh, it's a bit like in the family. Every now and then there is a little healthy reset that needs to happen. But you should uh, pay attention. And at times, uh, this is where the alliance manager is essential because sometimes the R&D people are so busy blaming each other between the partner and the internal that then the alliance person can say, hey, wait a minute, are we really serving the purpose here? Mm. That can the problem be is that that's not very visible to, to investors, right? So inside baseball, you know, you, you, could, you know internally if, if a partnership is starting to, to go off the rails, you know, because, because of that type of intervention, it's harder for investors to get any, any real visibility into that. Because a lot of that's going to be like the duck, you know, a lot, lot, of, lot of that's happening underneath the water on top. It still looks smooth. And when you start to see the milestones getting missed, then you can you have to wonder whether it's, maybe it's not quite as smooth as you think. Underneath maybe that. we need to start a blog where scientists and alliance managers can blog about what's going on, just like in baseball when they're negotiating their contracts with their agents. Mm -hmm. um, what what about you know? A lot of times it's it's how a big company will talk about the collaboration with a small company, whether there's ever a mention of it or whether there's never a mention of it. Isn't that a big sign as well? I remember going crazy because our collaboration wasn't mentioned or the deal was not mentioned in some release uh, from Rush. Oh, you know, and then the CEO of the company was upset and I was upset and everybody was upset. 
and it's just that it wasn't the time and uh, you know Roche doesn't like to communicate on things uh, that are not really tangible and and making sure they'll get to the market so i i, I think you it, it really depends on the culture of the company and i think uh, trying to get everybody to calm down when things are not communicated is, is a healthy thing i would be very careful as a for the investors to think if they talked about it, it's big. If they didn't, it's small. Maybe, maybe not. I don't yeah. know. And I totally agree. You know, it's interesting because, you know, in my new role, right, you know, in, in being around more investors, you know, I, I, I appreciate just, just how focused the investors really are on everything that, that that's coming out, all the different information that, that's, that's being put out into the marketplace. And there's always this assumption that the bigger companies, you know, are being very so thoughtful about everything they say and everything so carefully crafted, and it's not always the case, right? So to, to Sophie's point, sometimes you know you put out this release and, and the people who who decided to put out the release didn't necessarily check or decided that you know they didn't really see make mentioning that partner as 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 being that critical to what they were really trying to say. And so it was completely unintended, right? But yet I know other people are looking at it. So, so you know, trying to, to to gain any type of insight into what might be happening, that they almost overemphasize something that may be relatively trivial. I always was surprised people would, would say, "Oh, you guys did something like this because you must have been thinking that," and you and you say, "Well, gee, I wish we were that smart, but we weren't really, you know, we weren't thinking that far ahead." But but thank you for giving us credit for that. You're busy running a business and not, not everything matters. There's a, a lot of debate and, and discussion and, you know, I've spoken with both of you about, is it better to do a late stage, quote unquote, de-risk deal, late stage clinical or, you know, pre-commercial or even bio-commercial company? Typically you'll pay a lot more, but the asset, quote unquote, is more de-risked um, or going earlier. Um, usually the assets are a little cheaper. Uh, and you flip the card and you take all the risk and you take all the credit and you take all the upside. Um, there was a lot of discussion. Is it better to do five, $4 billion deals or better to do one $20 billion deals? Maybe Sophie, let's start with you. What's the put my uh, hat of a future CEO of a massive company or just a regular BD guy? Uh, you, you know, in, in, in a, I would say in a big company doing acquisitions, this is for acquisitions, not deals. Yeah. I think that the, uh, you know, senior management way prefers to pay a ton for the risk product project because uh, a failure creates incredible anxiety. I do think that the right strategy is actually to go earlier, pay less and make more bets. Uh, if you want to be in a disease area, just place a few bets. Uh, some will fail, but if you have smart people around you, eventually one will work. Uh, there is a probability of, uh, of success of late stage deal. Actually, in the data, you can see that an external project in early stage has a higher PTS than an, ex than an internal project because it's vetted by all this due diligence and there is no uh, you know, uh, reason for someone to uh, hang on to an external project to begin with uh, if it's not uh, meeting a, a target uh, profile. Um, Whereas a late stage brought in has a lower PTS. Uh, it was not developed by the right type of a company. Probably if it's for sale, it's a bit distressed. If you know, you're gonna pay, you know, six, seven, eight hundred million an upfront, if not way more. So um 
I, I, I personally prefer to do more bets and a bit more risky, uh, but I know that this is not what I have witnessed. So uh, I think uh, you know, a wise person once told me, you, you never want to solve a problem with an or when you can solve it with an and. And I think companies like Roche and, and companies like Pfizer can have the resources to do both, right? So I think you need to do both. You're managing a business. It's a commercial worldwide enterprise. You need to understand kind of where you are in your cycle uh, from a revenue and profit perspective. And if it calls for you to try to advantage in the near term and take advantage of you know, potential commercial synergies associated with a field force and maybe some assets that are coming off patent, then you may want to go and, and, and lean into a larger acquisition to, uh, to, to pick up some of those commercial assets. At the same time, it should not be you know, to the detriment of being able to do great science. And again, picking the areas of science that you want to excel in. So if you're Pfizer and, and you're focused on wanting to excel in gene therapy, if you're looking specifically to advantage, you know, where you are in the oncology cycle, then you do those deals uh, with, with companies that uh, are, are going to give you an ability to, to, to build that portfolio. But you don't neglect also the idea that, that there may be some things that from a commercial perspective could also make sense, you know, a collaboration. So if you take you know, even Pfizer's history over the last you know, year, where you take the deal with, with Myovan, right, which is much more of a commercial uh, partnership to, to, to help launch that product and grow that product versus uh, the deal they just did with, with Trillium. Right, which uh, you know started with a with an equity investment uh, about a year ago and has turned into uh, you know, an acquisition again to, to go after an area of, of science in, a, in the oncology space that has been interesting to many companies including Pfizer so you want to you want to look at it from that portfolio perspective or you take a deal like Biontech which we all know where we've been over the last year, but that deal, that story started, you know, three years ago in, in a flu partnership with messenger RNA. And then that collaboration morphed into addressing the pandemic uh, and, and working on, on the COVID vaccine. So it could go in multiple different directions, which, you know, doing that flu partnership, which was a much smaller deal, turned into something much bigger. And you want to try to do as much as you can with the budget and, and with the resources that you have. Yeah. And, and that, that's a, maybe a, that's a great point. And there's so much variety and it's very hard to kind of model what the outcomes can do can be based on the different deals, different structures, different life cycle where they are. One of the questions that I've had is how important, and I'm talking about acquisitions, and having rigid or hard NPV or DCF or return on invested capital sort of metrics when doing deals. And, and you know, one of the reasons we bring this up is we've been going back and looking at 14D9 statements. And in most cases, those numbers are not met. What sort of the underlying pinning, and that's across the industry, you know, by and large. And it, it kind of begs the question a little bit, is it that at the end, some deals just don't live up to what the expectations were initially? Is it that to justify the deal, perhaps uh, they needed to have rosy numbers to, to get to the valuation? Um, and then that leads to the natural question, should deals be based on NPV, DCF, or ROIC, or 
are a lot of deals strategic and they lead to the next deal and that specific deal is just maybe not going to be terribly uh, accretive or returning capital quickly and that's okay well if you look at uh, the analyst uh, and, and the forecasts of a product launch internally by companies they also never meet their targets so you know a company who says my product is going to sell x billion and actually sells x billion is very very rare so everybody's wrong in general uh, that being said, uh, the value of a forecast is uh, that you highlight the drivers of the business and you can also benchmark this analysis to how you look at your internal molecule or project. So I, I, I really think whenever we have to be, um, whenever people are, I mean, there has been some, uh, I mean, there are some companies who were doing deals based on uh, the instinct. I just don't know how you do that. At the end of the day, you have to put a number behind an offer and it has to be based on something. The interesting thing is not the number itself, it's all the analysis behind it and how the fact that you are taking the same standards internally and externally. And I think this is about the rigor of decision making. That being said, uh, you, you, you absolutely can have uh, something that you can call the strategic premium. Uh, once in a meeting, we made the joke that it was a desperation premium. Uh, but you can absolutely say, and I put a multiplier because I have synergy internally or because this is an area I really want to be in. Uh, so, you know, all this is possible, but you want to be transparent or, or around your assumptions. And then the fact that the buzz outside is going to be, oh, you did better or worse or whatever is not so important. Hopefully, you have a better understanding of your needs and your internal uh, way of evaluation than what you will read in the newspaper. And I think that's uh, that has to be the standard of uh, quality work uh, for company. Yeah, so I, I think Sophie says it very nicely. I, I do think you have to think about, you have to segment because are we talking about platform deals? Are we talking about preclinical? Are we talking about phase one, phase two, you know, pre-proof concept? Or are we talking post-proof concept? And I think at each of those different stages, you, you have to be flexible in terms of the analytics you might apply. I do think if you if you're looking to do post proof of concept deals, then you should be looking at the MPVs, the IRRs, the return on invested capital, payback period, those kinds of things, accretion dilution, and, and when when something's actually be, going to become accretive. But that's for later stage deals, which are going to be much more commercially oriented. So you have to make a decision about what do you think that label is going to look like, and when do you think you're going to be able to launch it, and you know how how are you going to be able to sell it, and will you make money. I think if you're pre-proof of concept, or especially if you're not even in the clinic, I think it's a little harder and there's a false precision built in to, to, the, uh, to, to some of those analyses. And so you may wanna rely on different analytic methods for, from a valuation perspective. I think hygienically, you, you'd like to, you know, maybe pressure test it with, with some level of, of forecast and, and discounted MPV and try to understand what the implied you know, returns might be. Uh, under different commercial scenarios. But since there's so much uh, in terms of risk that you're gonna have to try to characterize, whether it's the risk, the probability of technical success, probability of regulatory success, the, the, the pricing in a, in a market that may not you know, be, be yet mature five, 10 years from now, what, what the, uh, the competitive landscape is really going to look like. I think you can, you can talk yourself in or out of anything, right? It becomes like an ink block test. You can see whatever you want in those types of analyses. So you really then have to 
come back to what are the core principles of why you're doing a deal, right? You, you believe in the science, you believe in how it's going to impact patients. You think if that science and that impact is there, that it's actually going to be big. And if it's going to be big, you know, you'll get the appropriate returns and then you have to, and you have to be comfortable. So, you know, I've seen uh, even within Pfizer, the, an evolution on, on how we, how we go after that, because this notion of, gee, we're looking at a pre, proof of concept, or we're looking at a, a, a preclinical platform or preclinical assets or set of assets, and we're going to try to do a discounted cash flow of products that aren't going to launch for seven or eight years. I mean, it's, 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 an, it's an exercise in, in just, uh, you know, futility, quite frankly. It's a false precision, a crystal ball that's completely, you know, uh, foggy. And, and so if that makes people feel better, I guess that's good, but that's not really why you want to do that acquisition, right? If you're using that type of analysis to figure out whether you should or you shouldn't do, I can tell you, you shouldn't do it because you should be saying, gee, I really want to, to, this space is important. We believe in this space. We think it's going to make a difference to patients. And we think that this type of, of, of price is, is an appropriate price, appropriate investment for what we think we can get. But but there's a lot that goes into in, into that. Yeah, and that, that's a, a fantastic question. And let me maybe segue next into as you think about giving advice to smaller companies when they're working to foster collaborations, enter into collaborations, or sell their companies with a big pharma. What advice would you give them, Sophie? You should really listen to uh, what the company is looking for. And uh, because sometimes they, they don't as much as they could, and then they can waste a lot of time pursuing a company that will never come to a, an agreement with them. So just really making sure they understand what is expected and to see if this is what they are working on truly. A second thing is to uh, be extremely clear on what they have and what they don't have. And take advantage of the future uh, partner or at least those conversations to understand what are the Achilles heels of their projects. You know, larger companies have an enormous amount of knowledge and are pretty transparent about uh, what they are looking for. And if you're a smaller company, maybe sometimes it's appropriate, maybe it's not appropriate, but at least listen, hear them out and then sort things out. But don't just uh, believe what you're doing is perfect, and because that's that's a bit of a loss. It's valid for a larger company as well, by the way, in deal making between two large companies. Uh, you know, every interaction is an opportunity for learning, and the likelihood of a smaller company having to learn more is high, just because they have less people and possibly less experienced people. Not always, but sometimes. Um, so I, I think that's uh, that would be uh, very much of my advice. And then manage cash because deals never come as fast as you want them to come. And now that we are in the investment world, I can see you know managing cash is, is so crucial. So I, I would recommend that. And what what advice would you give them? You know, the deal was signed yesterday. Now what they should do to make sure the partnership really is successful long term. Just to continue teaming up uh, in the same transparency and engagement as they had uh, before deal making. You know, it's a bit like uh, it was courting and then it was engagement. Now it's been marriage. Uh, if you want to keep the marriage alive, I heard you have to do a lot of things. 
Yeah, it's a it's a great point, and, and I love the way Sophie says it that that it's you know listening, right? So because communication is two ways. It's it's not just what you say, but it's, but but listening and then then reacting to what you hear, which is so important. And you know uh, you know on that note, you, you want to make sure when you, if you're if you're a company that as you're going through the courtship process, yeah, it's really nice that you you'll be introduced to, to me and Sophie, and, and and we'll have a relationship, but we're not going to be the ones that are going to be, you know, at the lab doing the doing the discovery, the development, uh, or, or commercially launching the product. At some point in that courtship process, make sure you figure out who you're marrying. So, and make sure you start that relationship, right? It should the first time you meet the people who are actually going to be working on your project shouldn't be after the deal is signed. You should be they should be the folks that are championing, that believe, that are going to, and you need to believe in them. So, you know, that's, there's no substitute for making sure the right people, I know it's great that people want to talk to the CEO or they want to talk, but who's going to be the person who's going to be day to day that, and, and, and will those teams really click and make sure that chemistry is there. That, that's really, that's really great advice. Cause at the end that that's going to be, every deal is going to have a crisis point. So you got to make sure you have a good marriage, a good relationship with your colleagues on the other side to, uh, to get through that. Um, Okay, we're gonna go finally to a quick lightning round. That's a much more personal um, and, and interesting and humorous. Maybe Doug to you first, what is your favorite hobby and what hobby do you wish you took up earlier in life? So, you know, this whole favorite hobby thing, uh, it's, it's like saying, who's your favorite child, right? You, you love all your hobbies. So if it's, if it's summertime, you know, my favorite hobbies are getting in the water. So I like to, to dive, I like to scuba dive, I like to snorkel, I like to spearfish. So that's uh, that's that's one of my hobbies. If it's winter time, I'm going to get on a snowboard or on skis, and I'm going to do that. So I like to stay active and, and do things like that. The other thing that I like to do in the summertime is surf, and uh, that's a hobby that I wish I picked up when I was much younger because I didn't start surfing until I was in my 40s, and it's a little harder to to pick that sport up. And and as I get older, uh, surfing is tougher and maybe I'll just, you know, flip over to just doing the stand up paddleboard and trying to surf, you know, by standing up first and not having to pop up all the time. Yeah, sounds hard. Sophie, what about you? So jogging, preferably with my dog, because without my dog, it's not as much fun. I don't think that he likes jogging as much as I do. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, that's something I, I do to uh, relax, to um, feel good and to see landscape. So it's only outside, obviously. And I uh, picked up a piano a few years ago when I moved to Boston. And it's, uh, I mean, it's painful, I'll tell you. It's, uh, uh, I wish I had done it uh, before. It's, uh, I never get to the, the results I would like to, but at least I uh, enjoy classical music in a way I never did before. So this has been great fun. Yeah, that, that's terrific. And, and jogging with a dog is really enjoyable when the dog is actually jogging. I noticed that my dog, most of the time, the dog is not jogging and I'm trying to convince him to jog with me. <laughs> it doesn't work so well. Um, Sophie, what's your life hack? I like people. I like friends. I like new friends. I am old friends. I am um, very faithful. So, you know, I'm always happy. I have to resist uh, the interaction all the time, but uh, I just really like the friendship uh, that exists. Uh, that's what uh, being a human is all about. Especially important in COVID. And, and Doug, what about you? So in terms of life hack, just based on my definition of a life hack, I think something that, that is kind of essential to, to, to life is duct tape. 
I think duct tape is something that no matter where you are and what you're doing, duct tape can help to fix it. So whether you're trying to uh, you know, fix a, a broken paddle uh, or whether you're trying to, to figure out you know, how to catch you know, that fly that's flying around your kitchen, you know, duct tape can come in handy. So I love it. I, I recommend gonna... to people keep some duct tape around. Yeah, I think one of the best Chinese restaurants in New York City that we used to go to, literally everything in the restaurant was duct taped. And that was uh, nerve wracking to go there, but it was good. Yes, yes, it's, it should be part of everybody's you know travel kit. I, I actually, I, whenever I go, when I go skiing, when I go uh, you know diving, I take duct tape because you never know what you might want to fix. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to go get some duct tape. I do chocolate. It works too. Not <laughs> chocolate me. Too. <laughs> Well, great. Doug and Sophie, always great to see you. We really appreciate your joining us and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.